0: This conference will now be recorded. Hi, everyone. Kristen Sonata walker here, and I'm with my fantastic co-host and partner in, uh, well, I won't say crime, but you know what I'm saying, Dave Ballenberger. (laughs) How are you doing today, Dave?
1: Oh, very good.
0: Awesome. Well, we have a colleague and friend of yours, Kevin Fisher, who is the executive director of NAMI for the state of Michigan. Kevin, I want to ask you first. Is it a potato, potato thing? Because some people say Nami, some people say Nami. What is the correct? It,
2: the correct pronunciation is Nami. Nami,
0: NAMI okay. is
2: a East Coast thing, I think.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having
0: me. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Um, we're, you know, obviously we're doing our show, the business of mental health, and we're going to talk. A little bit too about value-based um payments value-based care and what that is and we're going to dive into that but first i want to find out from you kevin why um are you in the mental health field why is why was that important for you there's always a story there about anyone that decides to go into mental health care
2: well i'm guilty of being like many nami members Um, i got involved in mental health care in early 2011 um, in 2007, my oldest son Dominique was 20 years old and was diagnosed uh, with a mental health disorder. Uh, he was diagnosed bipolar, schizophrenic, and um, I learned very quickly that I knew nothing about the mental health care system, um, who the providers were, how to access care, any of those things that you know we would normally find kind of easily um, when we talk about traditional health. Physical health issues. Um, long story short, it was a battle for three years and getting him care, trying to uh, have some continuity to his care, and those kinds of things. Unfortunately, um, Dominique, uh, my son, lost his battle with mental illness on mm-hmm. June 27th of 2010. We lost him to suicide. So um, I actually found NAMI, uh, my wife did, looking for ways to help me because I was struggling uh, with the grief uh, and depression. And we quickly learned that I could best help myself by helping other people. Right. So I, I joined NAMI. Um, David happened to be the board president at the time. And um, I joined as a volunteer, as many NAMI uh, members are. And one thing led to another. And in 2014, we had a need for a new state executive director. Um, I was retired, um, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> and um, and I felt so passionately about the organization that I raised my hand and said, look, I take a crack at it. And uh, David and the board. Um, gave me that opportunity and here almost five years later i'm still here
0: wow well good for you good for you dave i know that you are just like on the edge of your seat with questions so i'm going to turn this over to you
1: (laughs) all right well kind of have known each other for a long time we discuss a lot of these things as we go down the road But one of the things I wanted to talk about today is this change, and we're hearing about this through in Michigan through one of our largest mental health providers in the state, which is Wayne County Community Mental Health, and they happen to have a CEO who is a believer in value-based payment, as I am, and I'm wondering, Kevin, how you view it.
2: You know, David, I feel very strongly and support value-based health care as well because it's something um, we should be more focused on. We should be focused on the outcomes, not just the treatment that we provide. Um, and I think you maybe we should get into the definition of value-based because maybe some of the listeners, um, because of the terminology, may not understand what that really means.
1: Well, from where I sit, I think what it means is that where we've where we've been up to this point is that people would come in, or patients would come in to see therapist, doctor, whoever it might be, and for that period of time, the therapist, the doctor, they built, and there was no question about what did they do, how did they do it, is the patient actually getting better uh, by coming in to see them. I think what value-based payment brings out, which is extremely important, is that there has to be some accountability for what people do so that you get paid on the basis of the patient actually improving. And this thing about if I'm depressed and I come in to see you and you ask me, well, are you depressed? Are you feeling depressed? Of course, I'm gonna say yes. And then you ask me, well, where do you think that comes from? I'm sitting there looking at you, I think a better question would be is we set up a plan last week to help you manage the depression more effectively in terms of getting up in the morning or doing something. Did that work for you? And then the question answer would be yes or no. And you know, and you go from there in terms of creating the plan. Um, is the way I'm seeing value-based payment, is that the same way you're seeing it?
2: Yeah, very uh very similarly um I think at the end of the day it comes down to what are the outcomes as you mentioned is the patient getting better am i living better with my depression or are you just asking me a few questions are you giving me um a prescription and i'm still not functioning i'm still just going home sitting in my room looking out the window Uh, I'm not able to improve the quality of my life, Um, and the value base comes in, and I think it's worth explaining the term value base means what's the value to the patient or the customer? Is that Mm -hmm. customer's quality of life getting better? Am I able to hold a job? Am I able to manage relationships with my friends and families and coworkers? Can I go to school? is my quality of life getting better? And we should be paying providers based on those outcomes rather than, you know, this 15-minute increment thing where a patient comes in, I saw him for 15 minutes, I get to bill this amount of money, next patient comes in, never discussing, are my patients getting better?
1: Right. Yeah, and I think the other part of this too that doesn't always get talked about and I know this from years of being in mental health, and I think, Kevin, you've seen it, is that um, agencies tend to build up their little kingdom um, where they feel as if they're everything to everybody. What value-based payment involves is you actually have to work together. So let's say, um, Kevin, you're an alcoholic, you're my patient, you also suffer from depression, and you have a job. And at lunchtime, Uh, there's a bar right next to uh, where you work, and it's very hard for you not to go into that bar and have a drink and possibly Mm -hmm. not going back to work. In a value-based treatment plan, I'd be working with another agency who provides maybe act support or some kind of support in the community where someone shows up at lunchtime and helps me stay out of that bar and then works with me for a period of time until I want to do it myself. Um, this is going to be hard for many, many agencies to accept.
2: I agree. And and I think this is positive change, but I think it's going to be slow change. But I think that the outcome is worth the effort because there are, many benefits to value-based health care. And we talk about value-based health care, I know I'm a mental health advocate, but we're really talking about it across the spectrum of mental and behavioral health care, because as you mentioned, it is about um, your providers working as a team. So it may be you have a primary care physician um, at a particular hospital, but as you mentioned, I may have a substance use um, condition that needs to be addressed. I may have a behavioral health condition that needs to be addressed. I may have another physical health uh, condition, diabetes, that needs to be addressed. And value based allows the, that team of providers to work together to address all my needs. So the, not only the overall quality of my life gets better, but at, in the long term, there's actually a savings realized because. We decrease mm-hmm. those chronic illnesses that go on, and I think that's the piece that's really hard to get providers to understand, or maybe even legislators or the healthcare plans, is that, yeah, there's an up upfront investment, but the l- long term there's a tremendous savings opportunity because we now have dealt with those chronic illnesses. So as you mentioned. Kevin's not going to the bar at lunchtime anymore, and Kevin's learning to manage his depression, and he's learning to manage his diabetes. And overall, Kevin becomes a healthier, more productive citizen, which benefits everybody.
1: And this requires a team effort, which, um, you know, and Kevin, you and I are real familiar with um, Wayne County in terms of how things operate in mental health, and we've got a lot of agencies out there who, you know, the herd shows up at eight o'clock in the morning. I don't mean to say that in a negative way. People filter through all day long. They bill for it at the end of the day. People get a bonus for seeing uh, more people than they were supposed to. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not the way this is going to be anymore. So, you know, there's not going to be more money. Um, The idea here is to save money. And exactly. uh, you know, so I, I think when you talk about that, you know, like you said, agencies are always thinking, Well they gotta put more money in it. They gotta put more money in it. No. What they gotta put into it is more coordination of care. And uh so when Wayne County CMH talks about going to a holistic system of care, that that is real different in terms of the way things have looked for a long time.
2: It is, and it's a it's going to be a cultural change. For for lack of a better term, the industry um and you know value based health care really ties very closely to the buzzword we've been talking about for years integrated healthcare care um
1: mm-hmm. they
2: work hand in hand um uh, and again, it's for physical and behavioral health, and at the end of the day, what we're looking for is an improved quality of life for the people who receive services not this billable hours fee for service um kind of thing that we've become so accustomed to um, where again uh, providers are accustomed to the more bodies that come through my door each day the more i can bill medicaid or or even the uh you know private health insurance um and it's about making money rather than improving the overall quality of life and i do want to stop here and say In making that statement, it's not an indictment of providers. I'm not saying that the providers are bad or have any ill will. It's the culture that we've become accustomed to. That's right. And we realize now that we need to change the focus. And the focus needs to be on the quality of life for people, for the patients and people who receive services.
1: Yeah, the other thing, too, is this kind of a change affects more than just – the system per se, but when you talk about graduate schools where Mm -hmm. people are studying to become social workers, uh, they're still teaching the same thing they've taught for the same last 25 years, Um, you know, a goal and objective and off you go, you know, there's no, this whole idea of coordination or even bringing in the concept of systems theory where you're looking at systems that affect the patient in relationship to the treatment plan. These are not things that are often taught in any graduate school. Uh, so yeah. we have a whole bunch of social workers out there who really don't. And you know who the most resistant group is going to be? is going to be therapists. Right. Yeah. And particularly therapists that are uh, private therapists. Um, this is going to be difficult for them. Um, But, you know, and again, it depends upon how this all falls out. But having owned an outpatient mental health clinic uh, with 32 therapists, their whole day is around billables. Yeah. uh, But then again, it's going to put a lot of onus on those that own those outpatient mental health clinics. How are we going to do this, Um, you know, in terms of being able to bring in other people. I know we have a program in Arizona where they have 20 what they call like-minded partners so Mm -hmm. that when a patient comes in and they're assessed and everything's done, any one of those partners would be participating in the treatment plan based upon the patient's needs. Now, that really doesn't affect their money because they're getting paid for what they do, but that does affect in terms of how you look at a patient and then how you keep that treatment plan consistent, which is hard, too, because all these groups have to be talking to each other.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, know it's interesting. Al- hard. Well, it's also interesting to think about, you know, again, the culture has been billable hours, for lack of a better term. And when we talk about, focusing more on quality outcomes and, and reducing the number of chronic illnesses and basically helping patients truly get better. There is an upside for the provider, so they're not losing all of their revenue. Uh, my understanding in value-based payments is there can actually be um, rewards or bonuses of sorts for those who do achieve better outcomes. Who uh, Because now you're talking about Patient satisfaction, um, and and so I know initially there are some opportunities for providers who are willing to move towards a value-based system that there are actually rewards available to them for achieving these better outcomes. Um, so and there and then there are efficiencies. There's uh, less again less time spent on chronic illnesses. There's just so much more involved and and patients have an opportunity to get involved you know we talk about person-centered planning self-determination all of those issues factor in to building a better outcome for each individual patient and again to me that just benefits everyone
1: well in terms of talking about payment too is that you know you're going to have what they're going to call a capitated payment where you're actually. Let's say someone comes in your clinic, and this is a question I want to ask you about too, is that patient comes in and if you're under that kind of a payment, you're going to be expected to give some kind of an estimate as to how long you're going to need to work with that patient in order to create some type of a functional change. Mm-hmm. And, it, and if you go past that, it's on you. So well, what ha- what happens is is you you get your most chronically mentally ill patients where it's very difficult to demonstrate change, you're gonna have to be careful of uh people not cherry picking.
2: Yeah, that's true, and that's something we mm. were very concerned about with the um Michigan's two ninety eight. Um Proposed legislation a couple of years ago that that's Need ongoing to explain today. That a bit,
1: Kevin, what that is?
2: Okay, so uh, 298 was is the section of the budget from 2016 where Governor Snyder proposed effectively privatizing the public behavioral health system we have here in Michigan. Right now, Michigan spends approximately 2.6 billion dollars. Um, on the public behavioral health care system, which includes mental illness, um, individuals with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities, substance and substance use disorders. Um, the governor proposed basically turning that system and the $2.6 billion over to the Medicaid health plans and that caused great concern amongst advocates and people who receive services in Michigan for a number of reasons, Um, one of which was quite frankly, the health plans don't have a very good track record when it comes to delivering care to people who live with mental health, substance use, and and, uh, intellectual developmental disabilities. So there was a commission or a, a work group put together, ultimately, um, called the um, 298 Facilitation Group, where a number of experts, um, advocates, providers, people from the health plans, people from the Department of Health and Human Services were put together, and we met for really almost 18 months. And uh, We were supposed to deliver recommendations to the legislature on where we thought we should go with behavioral health care in the state of Michigan. In that conversation, one, we heavily, and and the citizens of Michigan heavily determined that we wanted to keep the public system public and not turn it over to private Medicaid health plans. But, But one of the largest concerns in that conversation had to do with maintaining or achieving better outcomes for people who receive services. So when we, again, we talk about person-centered planning, when we talk about self-determination, value-based system of care very closely tied into where we think the state of Michigan's public behavioral health system should go. It should be focused on at the patient level up rather than at the payer level or at the insurance company or provider level down. Um, individuals don't want to be told what choices are available to them. Individuals want to be able to say, I, w- these are the choices I want to make for myself. I want to be able to live an independent life. I want to get a job. I want to be able to go to school. I want to be a tax-paying citizen. And these are the things that I need to help me achieve that. A big part of that package, David, is this value-based process where that mm-hmm. person is working with his his or her doctor and that team to help them achieve that goal and I will tell you uh, contrary to what some people may believe I don't I want I don't want to say many because I don't believe many people believe this but many people who live with mental health disorders they don't want to be shut in their home watching TV staring out the window all day um, I've never seen more prideful people than than I've seen with people who receive behavioral health services and say i have a job i have an apartment now i live independently and they're bursting um with excitement because they're not being told what choices are available to them in their life they're able to make their choices and they're better citizens for it
1: yeah for a lot of those people though they're going to need um supports uh in order to um get that to happen and it can't be all broken up into different agencies it has to be a consistent plan one of the things i wanted to talk a little bit about too is that in florida um the there's a large fqhc a federally qualified health care plan that is actually really moved into value-based payment relationship to integrated care mm-hmm. so when someone comes into the clinic they're assessed um, and they could be coming in for a health problem and the doctor talks to them and determines well maybe there's a little bit more here than that uh, mm-hmm. they go down they have an assessment done by a human services person and then if it's determined that they still need more help that plan includes all those pieces and there's agencies mm-hmm. that the fqhc works with that provides the actual behavioral health And one of the big challenges in integrated care is getting the mental health community to step up to the pace <laughs> of the primary care community or the primary care community slowing down a little bit because they finding it's really hard. You know, if someone comes in with diabetes and it's out of control. The idea would be is that they would medically be getting stabilized under diabetes. Well, and this may be someone who traditionally has not taken their medication, And Mm -hmm. has not followed a diet and has not done these things. And now they're doing it. So their medication gets under control. I mean, their diabetes does. And now when the doctor says, Oh, you're fine, what happens next? You know, are they dropped? And what's happening down there is, is that they're moving, you know, their services are staying with that human services agency. Because if they come back in 30 days or less, the FQHC is paying for that service themselves. Okay. So, you well, know, and those kinds of things are going to be happening.
2: Well, and you're right. The, the supports have to be available to and move with that person as needed. So it, it does become very difficult um, to say, well, Kevin is only going to need X amount of visits or is only going to need to receive services for six months, 12 months. It depends on that individual. And I think you uh, alluded to this earlier that the either the primary care physician or the behavioral health professional um, who's working with uh, a patient, they're going to have to have a good understanding of their patient and what it's going to take to achieve that outcome, and some patients Uh, especially those who are more severely mentally ill, uh, it's going to take more time. But overall, we will achieve a a greater savings um, when Mm -hmm. people have the opportunity to receive all of the wraparound services they need to go on and live as productive a life as possible. You know, many people ask me, we have a slogan, and and I know you're familiar with it in in the behavioral health care field that says recovery is possible. And many people say, well, what's your definition of recovery? Um, Because some people may never be, quote unquote, cured of their mental health diagnosis. And I say recovery is whatever it is to to the individual. You're right. There are some mental illnesses, just like any other physical illness, the diagnosis can be so severe that that person may need lifelong services just as if if I mm-hmm. uh, have a heart disease or something like that, I may need care for the rest of my life. But what we've also found is that more often than not, many people who live with mental health diagnoses can with proper diagnosis and treatment go on to live pretty independent lives. Um, and so that's where the focus is, and it's very much like um, insurance companies. I, I, a colleague of mine likes to use this um, analogy where he talks about insurance companies don't want bad drivers. Uh, you mentioned before uh, cherry picking. So when when they balance out the rates, they're balancing out the rates because the good drivers, the people who don't have uh, accidents and get tickets, are offsetting the cost for the bad drivers. Well, mm. in our system of care, there are going to be good drivers and and um, higher cost-to-serve drivers, and there are going to be lower ho- uh, cost-to-serve drivers. And the system has to allow for that. But overall, the system will save money. And I truly believe overall quality of life is improved for everybody um, when people get healthier.
0: Kevin, I... Yeah, I think...
2: So. Go ahead.
0: Justin. Sorry, I've got a question for you. How what role does NAMI play in these decisions get made about changing to a whole different, you know, method of of care, which is going to affect how things get billed. And there's a whole ripple effect that people don't, you know, abs- realize uh, that, you know, are in the field, you know, that this means electronic health records have to change processes that mean, this means clearing houses. Um, This is a whole change in terms of paperwork that gets filled out and how treatment is done. I mean, there's so many areas that this affects. So what role does NAMI play in helping organizations, um, you know, treatment centers and outpatient mental health and so on, navigate how they're in the heck they're going to make those changes?
2: So that is a great question. NAMI is primarily an advocacy organization. I guess maybe I should have explained earlier. Um, NAMI is the nation's largest grassroots mental health advocacy organization. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been around since 1979. And we advocate on the state and federal level um, for quality of care for anyone who's affected by mental illness, not just people who live with a diagnosis directly, but their caregivers. Um, and in many cases, um, When we talk about advocating for better care, we're talking about better education for providers. Uh, We're talking about um, issues as we're discussing today, uh, value-based healthcare, because at the end of the day, again, that benefits the people we serve or who we represent. Um, So we are involved at the national level in helping write legislation as it addresses patient privacy, when we talk about sharing electronic records, um, we know that that's an issue, um, but we know that there's a way to achieve that. Um, We know that um, some people have raised questions about HIPAA and those kinds of things, and we think, we believe that there's realistic legislation and controls that can be put in place where we do protect the privacy of the individuals while also allowing their care team to work together, whether it's a behavioral health care provider or a physical health care provider, that they can work together and have a better understanding of how to achieve, you know, the better outcome. Right now, there are many problems in not being able to share that information. For example, we talk about the opioid crisis. Most people don't realize that over approximately 55% of all opioid prescriptions written in the United States are written for people who have mental health conditions. Uh, If you have a person who has an opioid addiction issue, right now I can go to my mental health care provider, my psychiatrist, and get a prescription, and I can go to my physical health care, my primary care physician, and get a prescription, and they may not know that they're both prescribing maybe the same medication or medications that interact um, in a harmful manner to me, they don't have that information. So there's value to sharing that information. And NAMI stays on the forefront of helping write that legislation and help providers um, be able to achieve um, the record sharing in a productive, private, um, managed way.
0: So you're working, uh, then are you working with HIEs or... So that's something that you get involved with, and not as a direct point of contact, as we're the ones that can, you know, they're consulting firms not, that do that, but you
2: know, not as a direct privacy. contact, at least not here on the state level. Not in my national office. That may be happening. I do know that our national office worked um, very closely with um, federal legislators, as well as um, in developing processes with practitioners, so we can achieve this in a realistic and productive way um, and that information one of the great things about having the national office is they're able to hit things at a higher level than i can and then they share that information with us um, in the state and even in our local affiliates
0: gotcha.
1: yeah you know I, I was, as kevin was uh explaining that yeah, one thing that came to mind for me is that in many states, like, for example, in substance abuse programs, uh, particularly residential substance abuse programs, the state dictates the services that you can provide. And so we we you know we work in a lot of states with um, substance abuse programs. And it's amazing how many states think that having someone sit in group meetings for six hours a day, is somehow going to change their substance abuse problem or make them better. Um, but yet, if we expect, if we're going to call agencies to task for value based care and providing the right outcome, then the agencies are going to have to have the opportunity to provide service that they think is most effective uh, in terms of putting together their business plan and what that's going to look like. Because if I'm in the business of helping uh, substance abusers, then the program should be one designed by me. And if it doesn't work, that's on me. If it does work, then I have to be able to demonstrate that it worked. And these are things too on the government level that as they begin to demand value-based payment and people getting paid for providing, improving people's uh, functionality, they're gonna to have to be able to do whatever they think they need to do to improve that. And that's something that we're not seeing yet either.
2: No, agreed.
1: Um, I mean so often this is what happens. Um, you know, in terms of providing care, someone is telling them what they can do and what they'll pay for. Um, if I own a business, and I want to sell cars, I can sell cars any way I want to. I can give them away if I want to, but um, I I should be able to do that in behavioral health, too. If I think I have the magic bullet, then I should be able to do it. Um, But that's not the way it is right now. Um, Somehow we have governmental bureaucrats who know more about providing services than the people who are on the line every day expected to do it.
0: I think, too, um, there's a, and I'm not saying this to offend any of the listeners that are providers, I mean, that we're doing this show to help, and you've got two people, and also with Kevin, you know, you've got three people sitting here that have a long history in this field, but the way that things have been set up so far, there's a lot of learned helplessness is what I see when it comes to um, counselors or agencies. Uh, They're already bogged down. Um, there's not enough funding, uh, there's a constant fight and then things get changed and they, just like patients not knowing, well, who do we call to get what we need? Neither do agencies and neither do providers. Right. They don't, what central number can I call to find out exactly what the heck is going on? And so the system has created this state of learned helplessness and what i what I think is going to be really interesting to explore in this show that we're doing is how do we get out of that state so that we can be proactive about this um because that there's enough stigma in you know healthcare as it is and then especially in mental health and then you add who which what is the left hand doing what is the right hand doing on top of it nobody has a clear answer then you know you've got you've got a ticket to getting nowhere
1: Right. Yeah, you're yeah, absolutely right. You well, know, my personal example is I'm working with two agencies right now in Detroit, uh, both of which say they want to do value-based care, but neither of which is willing to go out and get value-based partners in terms of getting people to work with them because they're worried somehow they're going to offend community mental health, um, which just drives me nuts. Um, I don't think CMA should be offended at all. I think they'd be grateful if somebody actually stepped up and uh, provided a level of care that met the new standard, or at least worked towards it. Um, people are scared, and uh, agencies are scared. And, uh, you know, I, I think at some level, too, the system itself doesn't exactly know what it's supposed to do either.
2: Well, you know, I think Kristen uh, brought up a really good point and and in asking the questions how do the providers get involved rather than um have these changes dictated to them and and they not be a, <clears throat> involved in the process or those changes not make sense and the simple answer is this get involved become advocates um reach out to whether it's in Michigan the Department of Health and Human Services or, or we've got listeners uh, you know across the country get involved, contact your State Department of Health and Human Services or or, um, whatever agency manages the behavioral health system and say, look, this is the perspective of the provider agency. We're the experts, we're delivering. This is what we know or we believe can deliver better outcomes and potentially cost savings because whenever you're talking to legislators, um, at the end of the day, they're going to look at the dollars and cents, and nobody's looking to invest more money right now, even though we know the system is woefully underfunded. David mentioned it earlier. I think the reality is we're not going to get any more money than we have right now. So how do we work more efficiently to achieve better outcomes? How do we demonstrate that now? And then... We can continue to work on the funding piece later, but get involved in the process. If you don't want to have it dictated to you, don't sit on the sideline. Um, You don't have to be a professional advocate um, for you to have input. I know, for example, with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, they do have a website uh, where you can see what's going on uh, with issues like uh, the Section 298 uh, or proposed Um, privatization. You can see what changes are coming, but you can also submit feedback. Um, And so that's what we have to do. We have to become better advocates for what we're good at, for what we're experts at, and what we know will work better, because you may know something that I don't, that can be a game changer. And if you keep it to yourself, then it's easy to sit there and be frustrated for years and years and say, Well, I had a better mousetrap twenty years ago. Well you didn't share it with anybody.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. That doesn't help anyone, especially yeah. this is a this is a sector of healthcare that is all about advocacy. Advocacy drives this sector of healthcare. So think about it, listeners, um you, you know, you have a, a foot issue there are not national conferences out there about bunions okay that are asking you to advocate on the behalf of bunion health it's not that that isn't important it's just that it's not a sector uh, or a piece of healthcare that needs a lot of advocacy mental health absolutely does so it's kind of like you know do i go out and vote uh, for you know midterm elections or do I stay home? No, get out and vote. Get out and and uh, show up at places. Um, send in your questions. Submit your ideas because these aid, these organizations that are collecting all this information are sitting there hoping for people to use their voice because again it's a sector of healthcare driven by advocacy. So please get out there and do that. I mean, that's why we do this podcast, <laughs> get as much information as possible and inspire people to use their voice.
2: Well, exactly. No, and Kristen, right. let me add this because you said something earlier too. Um, and I mean this respectfully. Many of us work under the assumption that the people in Lansing or Washington, our legislators are knowledgeable about what we're talking about. Right. They're not more often than not they are not experts in this field when the 298 budget legislation was introduced in 2016 it became quickly and painfully clear that the legislators who would be making the decision the people on the appropriations committee really had no knowledge of how our public behavioral health system works i happen And I traveled the state. I happened to be at a um, a forum on the west side of the state about a month or so ago, and a member of the Appropriations Committee attended that event and made statements that were not true. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean that disrespectfully to the legislator, but the fact is, you're sitting on the Appropriations Committee and you don't know what's going on, yet you're voting on things that affect the quality of life for hundreds of thousands of people. In the state of Michigan, over 300,000 people receive public behavioral health care. Um, We need to educate our legislators and we need to certainly understand that this is not their area of expertise. So it is incumbent upon us to help educate them. So when we go back to your question about how can providers get involved, we need your advocacy. It is yeah. desperately needed because the people who are making the decisions don't really have a grasp, a knowledge of what's going on. And then when you factor in the fact that we have term limits in Michigan, by the time we're able to help get a legislator uh, a reasonable understanding of what's going on, they're already in their second term and they're looking at,
0: mm-hmm.
2: well, what's my next job going to mm-hmm.
0: be? Yeah, yeah
2: yeah uh, so it's a it's a very difficult situation and and there's there's a tremendous need for advocacy
1: so Kevin, when are we going to have our next legislative breakfast? <laughs>
2: you know actually, I don't have a date, but I do know that there is something in the works uh we're waiting for the new um legislature uh to start in twenty nineteen but I do know okay that there are there are organizations planning a legislative breakfast so we can start introducing information to them.
1: We invite our new governor who's supposed to be pro mental health.
2: Um, our, we're we're looking forward to uh, you know, it's interesting. The governor is uh I think just like with any other situation, you know, uh we've got a new democratic incoming governor and we still have um a House and Senate that's controlled by the Republicans. So yeah, the
1: Republicans, we're
2: gonna yeah. there's, there's there's gonna be a need to work together. But you know, mental health care is a nonpartisan issue. Um, okay. Mental illness does not discriminate. And so what I ask of any legislator, uh, any advocate, is to take off that hat. I'm a Republican, Independent, Democrat, and just look at what's best for the people we serve. That's it should right. really be that. I know I'm a little naive, uh, but it should really be just that simple. It should be. Yes.
0: Well, naivete and altruism do walk hand in hand. So. <laughs> 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 Those are, these are hey. not bad qualities. But Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show that you have to come on again. This is phenomenal.
2: Thank I you really Kevin. appreciate the opportunity. Um, David and I, really quickly, uh, when David and I worked together at NAMI, uh, we were often referred to as the Kevin and Dave show. Uh, <laughs> and so the show, the show goes yeah. on. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: We were well, called
1: the Kevin and Dave
0: show. Yeah? <laughs> tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and about, um, you know, the organization that you're working with.
2: So, you can best learn about NAMI Michigan at NAMIMI.org, so N-A-M-I-M-I.org. You can reach my office directly at area code 517-485-4049. I'm out in the public as often as I possibly can um, because this is something that I'm very passionate about David knows um this is not a job this wasn't a career choice for me. this is uh something that um i have i feel like I have to do and um and so I believe very strongly in that advocacy and I believe in delivering a better quality of care for everyone so i I'm one of those people who believes in working with everyone, whether it's providers, legislators, um, the state administration, whomever. However we achieve those goals, Agents,
0: uh, if you have an
2: event going on or something you think NAMI needs to be involved in, don't hesitate to reach out to me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dave, thank you again for bringing an incredible guest uh, and uh, doing the Business and Mental Health show with me. Oh, thank you, been This is fun. Yeah. Yes, it is <laughs> something we're both very passionate about. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on our new series. We hope to or we actually we strive to bring you a lot more conversations like this, talking about the most underfunded sector of healthcare, care, um, but the one that needs the greatest amount of advocacy in our humble opinions. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, are we done, Kristen?
0: Yep, it just uh, it just.